0: Namaste friends and listeners, Mandela here. I'm excited to start sharing podcasts again after pausing to focus on wildlife conservation. That said, I need your help. In order to keep the podcast ad-free and work towards financial independence, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillestravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account patreon.com slash trail less traveled every donation helps thank you so much for considering to help keep this podcast and educational outreach programs available to everyone learn more at trail welcome to the trail less traveled an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at TrailSTravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are on location in Brunswick, Georgia, on the porch of my father's house, which is near Lover's Oak, which is a live oak tree that they say is 900 years old. This house, I think, is around 130 years old, and we're on the big veranda out front. The live oak trees around here are covered in Spanish moss, and it's very, very humid day in December abnormally warm for this time of year. And I'm speaking with Tim Kyes. Tim is a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds, which basically means birds of the coast of Georgia that we don't hunt or eat. Tim is an overall bird enthusiast and ornithologist. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Tim, for meeting with me on the veranda today and speaking with me on the trail as traveled.
1: My pleasure.
0: My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood?
1: I was actually born in London and grew up in England until I was about six. Some of my earliest memories are actually outside of London. We moved when I was five to the countryside southwest of London and my parents worked basically from home on a large property and we were basically feral so we would be kicked out of the house in the morning and uh, a little pack of us would just play all day in the in the fields and woods around the house which at the time seemed vast in retrospect going back it was actually a fairly small little patch of woods all of our adventures were imagined there we We built forts, we climbed trees, we fought, we ran around, we just had a great time in the outdoors. So that was probably my earliest memory of the outdoors. We moved back to the United States. My parents are both Americans. So we moved back to the United States when I was seven got to live closer to my grandparents. My grandfather particularly was very influential for me. He worked in a steel mill his entire life, but his passion was the outdoors and the environment and fishing and water conservation and land conservation. And when he retired from his job at the mill, he immediately threw himself into land conservation and river conservation efforts. This was in Massachusetts. He was always an example to me. We spent a lot of time outdoors, both in Massachusetts and in Vermont, where my family purchased, when my father was a teenager, about 200 acres of land in the Green Mountains in Vermont. And to this day, the, every day that I'm not in Vermont, part of me hurts inside. It's really sort of the center of where I feel like I should be. <laughs> and I ended up much later going back to school there. That's neither here nor there. But the art outdoors was always a really important part of growing up. My father was interested in birds to a certain degree, particularly birds of prey. He had read all the books about the Montana wildlife biologists, the Craigheads, who would you know scale cliffs to get eaglets out of their nests and things like that. So that sort of interest was always there for me, but it was part of a much broader general interest in being outdoors and, and being part of the natural world and enjoying hiking and biking and canoeing. And as a child, I didn't do a lot of overnight camping with my family because my mother wasn't all that into that, but all of our vacations were up in Vermont, away from people in the Green Mountains. It was really important in forming my later interests and passions in the outdoors and then more specifically, working with birds.
0: Now, Tim, we're sitting on the porch here and I'd love for you to look around and open up your ears and eyes and tell us what you see and mainly what you hear.
1: This would possibly be more activity earlier in the day. We're here in mid-afternoon, which is typically a fairly quiet time for birds. But immediately there's a cardinal chipping 20 feet off to our left here. They have a really distinctive sharp chip note. It sounds like smacking two nickels together. And he's just been kind of going nonstop. We also have some flocks of blackbirds that are working the treetops, probably. Mixed in with those are robins. On the coast of Georgia in winter, we typically get these roving bands of blackbirds, mixtures of grackles and red-winged blackbirds, uh, and robins that are feeding on berries and insects and seeds and things in the tops of these trees. So I'm hearing a little bit of that. I've also been hearing the calls of a Carolina wren, which is just sort of a whistle, descending whistle, And then some of the other resident songbirds, Tufted Titmouse has been squeaking, and uh, Grackle is making that harsh call that Robin just whinnied over there behind us. So definitely a lot going on, even for a very warm, sunny afternoon. Now just sort of imagine being back here in spring and an early morning where you have all these birds that are resident birds, as well as migrants that are coming out of South America and Florida, and it can be overwhelming, but wonderful. I remember going for a run in my neighborhood one morning, and I got about 50 yards, and I stopped running, ran back, got my binoculars, and just birded for an hour because the trees were just full of, full of birds singing. I think there had been a weather front that had stalled out the migrants, and all of a sudden it cleared, and boom, they were, they were there. Not a huge number of species right now, but definitely activity. And that's one of the great things about birds is basically anywhere you go in the world at any time, you will be able to find birds. They're easier to find than the mammals, which are often nocturnal and very shy of people. You can throw up a bird feeder and bring them right to you. And a red-bellied woodpecker just called, another common resident here in Brunswick. The longer we sit here, the more things, <laughs> the more things we'll hear. But we're basically in town. But the forests that we're in are the remnants of a maritime forest, which is really a fairly narrow strip of live oak-dominated forest that would have been on the immediate coast through the Carolinas and Georgia into Florida. It has a really charming feel to it. We've already mentioned the moss. The trees have resurrection fern growing up on them, which. Right now is lush and green because of the rain we've had recently, but will just shrivel up and be dry and crispy during intervals where there's not much rain. And the understory is often dominated by palmetto, magnolias, which of course in spring are spectacular, and in fall are wonderful fruit-bearing tree for birds and a great place to look for migratory thrushes and things like that. So really a magical place to be for birds, really year-round. And I've lived in a lot of other places where there's plenty of birds, but this is where there's the most visible migration is just going on. Really, most of the year, there's something moving through, and a lot of them are very visible. Large birds, water birds, wading birds, ibis, wood storks, ducks. So there's really very, very few times a year where there's really not major bird movements going on.
0: Tim, now I'd like to ask you about the evolution of birds. And some paleontologists think that dinosaurs evolved into birds. So I'm curious about what you think about that.
1: First of all, a fascinating question and well outside my realm of expertise. But I have tried to read some of the competing views on bird evolution and whether they were in some line of pteropod dinosaurs. As I understand it, the leading opinion among paleontologists is that birds did evolve from a line of pteropod dinosaurs. It sounds plausible to me, but then I'll go and read, you know, Alan Fiduccio is one of the scientists who has a different opinion on that, and I read his arguments, and wow, that sounds kind of plausible. So I'm in a position where I don't really know the paleontology. I probably would go with the majority opinion on that, and of course it, it makes my job that much more glamorous to be actually studying feathered dinosaurs that actually survived The discussions get fairly technical about bone structures, and the one that comes to mind is foot structure, and one of the critiques of the pteropod dinosaur line is that the toe structure would have had to actually change quite dramatically, toes rotating around foot uh, in a a way that seemed sort of implausible or unlikely or, or, or whatnot. The weight of the evidence from analyzing the development of bones of dinosaurs through birds seem to point to they coming from pteropod dinosaurs but there's definitely as in many fields of science I think there's still unanswered questions and there's not necessarily neat packages that everything falls right into and of course you're dealing with an imperfect fossil record one of the wonderful things about birds their adaptation for flight actually means that their bones don't preserve very well because they're very lightweight. They're generally hollow or filled with sort of spongy bone, unlike mammal bones. So they're a lot less likely to preserve long term. So uh, compared to some very neat evolutionary lines like with horses, there's not that beautiful a lineup with evolution of birds. For whatever reason, probably in part because of this bone structure question. It points to one of the really amazing adaptations that's made flight possible.
0: Let's talk about flight and how a bird does it. Birds have different types of feathers. The feathers have different names and different textures, so let's talk about that.
1: Sure, one of my favorite things to talk about. So I usually think of this in two parts. One is the constraint of flight, and then the second is the freedom of flight. Structurally, physically, flight places tremendous constraints on any animal based on weight, on balance, every element of that bird's skeleton, their physiology, their anatomy is altered in order to get off the ground. So looking at birds, they have no teeth. Well, teeth are heavy, you know, by volume, they're the heaviest part of our body. But probably more importantly, birds with long necks with a mouthful of teeth would be unstable balance-wise. You'd need to counterweight your teeth with something else further back in your body. So birds that require really the grinding action of teeth instead have a gizzard where they actually swallow small stones to grind up their food but that's centrally located directly between the wings and so even though you have the additional weight of those stones that do the work of teeth you don't have the counterbalance issue of having something very heavy way out in front of your wings If you look at the skeletal structure of birds, the general sort of five-fingered limb, pentadactyl limb, which is common among all our vertebrate mammals, is simplified. So there's fewer fingers. Some of those fingers are fused, and that's clearly to basically reduce their weight. You look at the bones themselves, we mentioned that most flying birds their bones are hollow. Now, there's some diving birds that really require that extra weight, like a diver needs a weight belt, and their bones are not hollow. And many of our flightless birds, like ostriches, their bones are not hollow. But for those birds that are trying to get off the ground, again, the constraint of weight and weight reduction has led to these hollow bones, simplification of bone systems, and fusing of certain parts of the skeleton. And that's really an interesting one, because to generate the power for flight, you need these massive flight muscles, which are centrally located, and they're attached to the sternum. And if you've carved a turkey or chicken, you know exactly what we're talking about. You've got this unique projection on a bird's sternum called a keel, which is the little bone that you carve you know, on either side of on the chicken or turkey breast. When that bird's flying, the whole rib cage, the whole body cavity of that bird needs to be completely rigid or all of that energy when those wings flap and those muscles contract would be absorbed in the body cavity and not translated into into powered flight. So in order to generate that power, you have these massive muscles, but you also need a more rigid body cavity. So birds, when they breathe, their ribs don't expand and contract like ours. Their ribs are really fused and which leads to an entirely different system of lungs than ours. Their lungs are much smaller and much more efficient than ours. So when we breathe in and out, we take about 30% of the oxygen out of that air that we breathe. Birds are taking more like 90% out. Their lungs are pass-through lungs, so air flows in a continuous flow in one side of the lung and out the other side of the lung, and that's basically because their whole respiratory system is a series of bellows where they inhale one sort of packet of air. It doesn't go right into their lungs. It goes into an air sac that then is pumped into the lung with the next exhale. And so what it means is that even as the bird is exhaling, there's a constantly fresh air flowing through the lungs and extracting that oxygen, which is required for the tremendous physical exertion of flight. We've talked about weight loss, the rigidness of the body cavity, the efficiency of the lungs. The bird's body temperature is higher than ours, which increases their nervous system transmission speed, so their reflexes are quicker, their muscles can contract faster and with more power. Downside, of course, is they have to eat more to maintain that higher body temperature. But they're routinely, when they're flying around, their body temperature can be 104, 105, 106 degrees temperatures that would be dangerous for humans. You know, a reproductive system for a bird is 99% of the time a complete waste of weight and space. So Birds have reproductive systems that essentially shrivel down to almost nothing during the parts of the year when they're not reproductively active. Female birds have one ovary. Male birds, their testes basically shrivel up to nothing during, during the non-breeding season and then expand dramatically when breeding. Um, so again, you, you can literally look at every different organ system and see the constraints that flight has placed on birds. The wonderful thing, though, is once they're able to actually get off the ground, once all those physical constraints are in place, they can go anywhere. Physical space is almost non-relevant to some birds. As long as they've got good food resources and reasonable weather, we have birds that can fly from Alaska to New Zealand nonstop. They don't land on the water. They don't feed their entire digestive system atrophies right before they take off. Before they take off, they come close to doubling their body weight. So just, you know, put yourself in that position. I'm a roughly 200 pound male. If I had to double my body weight, get myself up to 400 pounds and then run, fly nonstop for five days and nights, absolutely incredible. What they're actually able to do once these constraints of flight have been met is really staggering, and it raises all sorts of other questions like, okay, you can do that physically, but how do you navigate? How do you find your way? This is a fascinating field of orientation and navigation, and there's basically evidence that birds use celestial navigation just like sailors do, and not in the exact same way. They really key in on the parts of the sky where the stars move the least, so the clusters around the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere and in the Southern Hemisphere there's other clusters of stars around in line with the South Pole. You can monkey with birds in all sorts of settings to figure out what their physical cues are that they're picking up on in the environment. So people have taken birds into planetariums. And during spring migration, these birds that are migratory exhibit what's a German word, I believe, which is migration restlessness. And it's basically they hop in the direction that they would like to fly if they were able to fly. And you can quantify this with little ink pads and paper cones around their cage. And so you can basically generate vectors for the direction that the bird is trying to go in. And so you can put them in a planetarium and rotate the night sky as it normally is and see what direction they'd go. And then spin the night sky around and they change direction and go the other way. Similar studies have been done looking at magnetism and proving that many birds can sense the Earth's magnetic field and they use that for navigation. They can use polarized light. Of course there's birds which use rivers and coastlines and mountain ranges sort of as their highways. What's most amazing with some of these shorebirds and seabirds is that it's not learned. This is innate behavior many wading birds, ducks, geese, cranes, it's a learned behavior. The young birds follow adult birds. They fly in flocks. This is why you've probably seen or heard about retraining whooping cranes to fly their migration route, and people dress up as cranes, and they fly ultralights that look like cranes. They take the young ones on the route the first time, because otherwise they'd have no idea where to go. Here in Georgia, studying arctic nesting shorebirds our first southbound shorebirds arrive in late july and august after already having nested they're all adults the adults have left the arctic with their kids behind so those chicks that have just hatched five or six weeks later they're migrating with no adults and they do it and some of these birds are going all the way down to southern south america so somehow that is innately passed on, and, and I wish I could explain it well because, or, or explain how it works because it's absolutely stunning. If you look at migratory birds, there's a whole range of ability. There are birds that you know, have been experimentally have been removed from their nests in the northern Great Britain and dropped in Boston Harbor, and then three days later they're back on their nest and they've never been to Boston Harbor before. So it raises really interesting questions about it's not just an ability to have a compass and point north, south, east, west. It's really, you need a mental map. Imagine you're the bird in this experiment. You're essentially abducted by aliens. You're removed some unknown distance and dropped somewhere else. But if you're given a compass, so what? Unless you have a map to use you have no idea where to go. So many birds not only have these elaborate compasses, which they can use through celestial navigation or magnetic fields, but they also have some form of map where they can place themselves in relationship to where they need to go. And that, I think, is the least understood component of this whole navigation and orientation field. And very interesting, but really hard to get your mind around. It's clear that some birds can do it, some birds can't Sometimes the ability improves with age. You know, first-year birds are great at following a single compass bearing, but if they're translocated one way or the other, they just stay on the same course, whereas birds that are older are able to compensate for that shift. So pretty amazing stuff that they're able to do. Considering how easily we get lost just bumbling around our neighborhoods, it's, it's, uh, it's humbling that these birds that weigh, you know, 15 or 20 grams are able to navigate our world so much more efficiently than we can. You're listening
0: to The Trail Less Traveled on the Trail 103.3. We are in the studio with Tim Kyes. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. Tim, I'd like to ask you about swifts and their formation of their feet in relation to what they spend their time doing, most of their time
1: in the air and then, you know, like you said, clinging to the side of cliffs. Swifts are wonderful birds that you virtually never see perched uh, unless they've somehow fallen down your chimney if you have them nesting in your chimney, which we have in the, in the eastern United States. But they've got very, very small feet. They're essentially designed for constant flight. They're aerial insectivores, so they're grabbing bugs out of the air. If you had one in hand, its bill would look like a tiny little stubby bill coming out of some bristly feathers in its face. But if you were actually to open the mouth. It would have an amazingly wide base, and so they actually really have this huge mouth for catching flying insects and really specialized bristle feathers around the mouth, which many insect eaters have that help them to to catch them in the air. But their feet are tiny, poorly developed, and essentially they can cling to the sides of cliffs or chimneys. Historically in the east they would have nested in tree cavities where they build their little stick nests that are literally attached to the sides of cliffs with saliva that hardens that's where they lay their eggs. In the eastern United States, we certainly have them nesting in people's chimneys, and often we get calls from folks hearing weird squeaking noises in their chimney, which is off usually the begging chicks. Or if for some reason nest falls, you all of a sudden have a little nest with some, some hatchlings in the bottom of your fireplace. Definitely a bird that is so specialized at flying, it almost can't perch
0: i have also like to ask you about cormorants and other birds that get the best of all three worlds, it seems like. And they can fly, they can be on land, and then they can also fly underwater. How does that work? And also, how long does it take for them to dry their feathers out after they've been swimming before they can fly again?
1: Great questions. Birds that specialize in swimming and diving, there are trade-offs. So really specialized diving birds are usually fairly clumsy on land, and that's because their legs are really placed far back on their body. Loons are a classic example, similar to cormorants in their behavior, even less able to waddle around on land. They basically have to rest on their belly and push themselves along. But underwater, they're incredible swimmers. Loons would swim with their legs, but there are birds that swim that basically essentially fly underwater with their wings. Cormorants, whole group of birds called alcids, which the most famous would be the puffins, but include guillemots and razorbills and mers and dovekey. But if you're in a position to be, a, and I've seen this looking down from a cliff into birds on the water, you'll see them dive and you'll see their wings flapping as they go underwater. It's one of those things that there's trade offs to be a real aerialist specialist on the wing. You often have some trade-offs for your perching abilities. If you're a real diver and specialize in diving, there's usually trade-offs in your ability to fly. The, The obvious example where it's gone the farthest would be the penguins that have entirely lost their ability to fly but are just spectacular swimmers underwater. So we have a number that are able to carry out all three, you know, terrestrial, flying, and swimming, but usually they specialize in, in one or the other, and you can see that they've paid a price, either with leg placement or wing size. Our real diving birds, their wings tend to be quite small, so when you watch puffins and other alcids in flight, they really have to work pretty hard to keep aloft. If you look at the, ex- the other extreme, flyers like seabirds, albatross that may go for days without ever alighting on the water. They've got these just massive long, long wings, very clumsy on land, not good at diving. But yeah, they have to have their own little runways to take off. But once they're off, they're absolutely spectacular. And one of the neat things with albatross, at least in the United States, if you go to the West Coast of Northern California or Washington, Oregon, in summer, you'll see black-footed albatross foraging. Near shore. You don't have to go very far off to see these birds. They are collecting food to feed chicks that are in the Western Hawaiian archipelago. Their commute between their nest and their feeding grounds can take two weeks for them to do that. It's absolutely stunning, their ability to travel. Those distances at sea, again, raises all sorts of wonderful questions about navigating at sea, where you really have very little landmarks to go by. Many of the seabirds actually, they're obviously not carrying around whole fish for weeks on end. So many of like our seabirds here, many of our terns and gulls, their adults are flying several miles, catching a fish, bringing it back, and giving it to their young. These seabirds, like albatross, they actually produce an oil that they then are able to basically jet into the mouth of their chicks. Incredibly fatty, rich oil. That's basically their way of translating their food from fish or squid, many of them squid eaters, to food for their chicks. Obviously they can't do that when the chicks are really young, but as the chicks get larger and they're able to go a full week between feedings, then the adults would stagger these two-week flights, and so the chick would be fed about once a week. Very, very rich in protein and fat diet from this oil that seabirds produce.
0: The wandering albatross is my favorite bird. One question I'm curious about is exactly how high can they fly?
1: Well, I can't answer directly about the altitude that albatross fly. I don't associate albatross and other seabirds with really getting to high altitudes, but many birds do. And uh, typically during long-distance migratory flights, there's a number of reasons to get higher. One, the air is cooler and you don't have to worry about overheating, which is an issue for a fully feathered animal that can't sweat. Even in very cold environments, birds are often more at risk of overheating through the exertion of flight than they are of being too cold. So some birds like swans, I think, have been recorded at flying over 30,000 feet There's bar-headed geese which fly over the Himalayas every year in their migratory flights. And obviously the geese have to get over mountains to get to where they're going. So they obviously have to either fly way around or, or go high. Some of the waterfowl are basically trying to get into the jet stream. If you're a goose or a swan, your ground speed in normal flight might be 50 or 60 miles per hour. But if you can get up high enough up into the jet stream that's typically an air mass is moving about 100 miles an hour. So all of a sudden, your ground speed is tripled, and the energy that you need to exert for your migration is cut dramatically. So a number of, especially geese and swans, have been documented well over 30,000 feet. Now, most of our songbirds are flying lower than that, and it depends on whether they're doing really long-distance migratory flights over water, but many in the you know several thousand feet up, unless they're sort of brought down by inclement weather. Albatross, I'm not sure how high they go. Again, I think of them as dynamic soaring birds where they're able to travel great distances without ever flapping because they're able to catch even very small updrafts of air that are associated with waves and wind. So albatross and many other seabirds actually thrive in windy oceans where they're able to basically surf the lift that's coming off of waves in a windy environment. I mean, one of the reasons we very rarely get albatross in the northern hemisphere, except for the few species that breed in the northern hemisphere, is that to get here, they'd have to traverse the doldrums, the middle latitudes of the globe, where typically it's not very windy. And so albatross with no wind, as I understand it, are stranded. They don't fly very well if there's not a good wind. So you think about albatross taking off On land, we talked about their little runways where they have to build up speed to head into the wind and get enough lift to get their big bodies off the ground. If you put a sitting albatross in a flat, calm sea with no wind, I'm not sure that they can take off.
0: I'd like to ask you about the magnificent fricket bird and why their tail is shaped as it is. And then also I'd like to ask you about the harlequin duck and the dipper.
1: So the dipper is actually a songbird, and the harlequin duck is obviously a duck, but both of them share a love and an ability to handle sort of roaring rapids and rivers. The dipper is perhaps most unique in that most songbirds don't have really affinity for swimming at all, uh, and yet this is a songbird that can swim underwater in raging rapids. It feeds, looking for aquatic invertebrates in the stones and the pebbles in, in rapidly moving rivers, and it actually builds nests, oftentimes kind of behind waterfalls or on rocky ledges and cliffs right in the middle of the stream, which would again be a great anti-predator defense as long as you don't flood out, you know, in a a big storm event. But wonderful birds, John Muir's favorite bird, and back in his day they were called oozles, O-U-Z-E-L, which is a wonderful, wonderful word. Uh, Actually, my canoe is named the Ouzel. But uh, Harlequin ducks are similar in their ability to navigate real rapids, and they're also just one of the more spectacularly colored ducks, as their name suggests. They sort of have this Harlequin pattern of, of red and white and dark purpley blue. A couple times they've turned up in Georgia. Unfortunately, we're very far south of their normal range. So where I've seen them has been in the northeast on the rocky coast of Maine and Massachusetts. But for those of you out west, you're in the land of the dipper. We don't have them in the east. Unfortunately, they're a wonderful bird to watch, hopping around on the rocks, diving in and out of the water, bringing wads of moss back to construct their nests. And I remember watching them while backpacking in California and the snow was still completely covering the ground and these guys were building nests in the rivers with the snow melt still coming, but presumably able to predict how high that water would come. And so the frigate bird is one of these incredible aerialists. They're piratic, which means that they predominantly steal food from other seabirds. So they routinely chase smaller birds like tropic birds, gulls, terns, boobies, and they're designed for aerial acrobatics. Their wings are very, very long, narrow, and pointed, and their tail is very, very forked and long. And so that just gives them sort of if you think about an airplane able to control its flight with the tilting its flaps and all that they've got sort of the ultimate flaps so they can just really really chase birds with amazing aerial coordination and speed and and typically catch the food that's regurgitated by their by the other birds before it hits the ground also amazing birds and the males have this huge brilliant red pouch that they inflate during the mating season so in Georgia, the equivalent would be a jacked-up pickup truck, but that's what they've got, the big red balloon on their chest, and they inflate it, and they try and impress the females that way. We don't get them here in Georgia very often. I've seen them a couple times on the coast. Typically, they're driven in by storms. So any big storm that with a lot of offshore wind, we start looking for interesting seabirds, and frigate bird is one of them. That It can turn up on the coast or way up in, in interior lakes in the interior part of the state. I'm just wondering, do all birds use thermals? Not all birds use thermals. Those that can can save a tremendous amount of energy. So just to compare two otherwise similar species here on the coast, we've got wood storks, which are a large wading bird that routinely uses thermals. And so they've been documented foraging up to 70 kilometers from their nesting territory because they'll wait for the day to warm up, they'll wait for a thermal to develop, they'll catch the thermal, ride it up a few thousand feet, set their wings and just glide. So basically expending almost no energy, they can go 20, 30 40 kilometers to a good foraging area, feed, and then do the reverse and come back. Many of the other wading birds don't use thermals at all. So great egret, another large wading bird, it basically actively flies wherever it needs to go. So its potential range that it has available to it for foraging when it's feeding chicks is a lot smaller, and it has to expend a lot more energy to do that. Sort of the classic soaring birds are birds of prey, and there are birds that migrate from North America all the way down to South America using relatively little energy because they're catching thermals the whole way. It's one of the reasons that many of these birds stay over land all the time because thermals don't really generate over the ocean. So you get these tremendous, tremendous migratory corridors coming down into Mexico and Central America where all these soaring birds basically are funneling down from the vast northern continent through these very small countries like Panama and just tremendous numbers. And you you can actually watch across the horizon birds rising up in one column of air and then just gliding to the next one. And, And they, of course, are seeing the thermals ahead of them by the birds that are in them. So it's a, it's a great way to greatly reduce the energy you have to expend to fly. There are plenty of birds that just their wing structure can't generate enough lift. They have to actively fly. And it's again, it's one of these trade-offs. You know, think back to the puffins. You're not going to see <laughs> puffins, which are a little cannonball bird with short wings. Small wings just don't have the capacity. They couldn't generate the lift to keep their body off the ground without constantly flapping peregrine falcons, which can catch thermals, but also are capable of powered flight straight across the Gulf of Mexico and don't bother necessarily going all the way around. A lot of the birds of prey would prefer to stay over land using thermals and, and conserving energy.
0: I'd like to talk to you about egg shapes and why eggs are shaped differently. For example, there are some birds in the Bering Sea, their eggs are shaped so that they can't roll out of the nest. Let's talk about that
1: eggs are absolutely wonderful marvels the coloration the pattern the shape I, of course, disagree with the early egg collectors in that there really was some conservation impacts to collecting eggs, but I can really see the appeal because they're such absolutely beautiful, spectacular things. They're often very specifically adapted, whether by coloration or by shape, to where the adults are nesting. Cavity nesters often have very pale white eggs. They're not visible because they're in a cavity, so they don't need to be camouflaged. But most birds that are nesting out in the open, their eggs are camouflaged to one degree or another. When the bird leave the nest. They don't want the eggs to be glowing white chicken eggs out there for everything to see. So on our coast, for an- instance, most of our seabirds and shorebirds nest right on the sand and their eggs essentially almost disappear into sand or shell that they're nesting on. Some of the interesting differences in shape are cliff nesting birds obviously would concern would be that those eggs would sort of roll off a cliff. If you take a chicken egg on a table and kind of give it a little push, it will roll for a long way, kind of white weaving at way around. This would be very ineffective strategy to have an egg like a chicken egg if you're nesting on a narrow ledge. And so a lot of the seabirds, like the alcids, the ones that uh, some of these pelagic seabirds, have really much more conical shaped eggs. So they actually would roll in a very, very tight spiral and decrease the chance that just they accidentally are knocked off a ledge because they're more likely to just spin almost in place. Again, they're adapted very much by color and shape to the environment that the adult lays them in, and that's just sort of one of the really cool examples of dramatically different egg shapes.
0: You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled on the Trail 103.3. We're speaking with Tim Kyes. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. Last bird question is eyes. Uh, everything from an owl being able to see a little mouse in the grass at night to pelicans that can see a fish five feet below the surface to how that term comes in, you know, how you have eyes like a hawk.
1: Sure. Birds are predominantly visual animals. They typically have very poor senses of smell, although there are exceptions. Birds like vultures that feed on carrion, some of them actually have very acute sense of smell. But most birds really depend on their eyesight for finding food, for everything that they do in life. And those eyes are, are going to be specialized depending on whether these birds are nocturnal or diurnal. Most nocturnal birds are going to have much larger eyes so think of the owls and the nighthawks, the night jars. Their eyes are very large. If you actually look at the inside of their eyes, they actually don't have very many cones. Rods and cones are the two cells on the retina of your eye, and cones are basically what allow us to see in color. But cones don't function very well in low light. So in order to improve their ability to see in the dark, they've got almost no cones, almost all rods. And then they also, having the larger eyes, they're actually able to bring in more light And comparing bird eyes to human eyes, the density of those cells in in their eyes are much higher. So they often have greater visual acuity, can see in greater detail, and see in lower light conditions. The shape of some birds' eyes is actually more tubular. They're not perfectly spherical eyeballs. Slightly stretched out, which actually apparently allows for some magnification on the back of the eye so the, the light that travels through the lens basically it's like moving the movie screen further away from the projector the image is larger and, and with the density of cells there to read that incoming light you end up having finer acuity and, and a, a larger image to see. The The night birds again have fewer cones, more rods, larger eyes. The birds that are out and about in the daytime typically see in color very well Uh, Certainly the songbirds, you can tell by looking at songbirds, the males are often beautifully colored to attract the females. So they're, of course, able to fully see in color. And in some cases, they're actually able to see beyond the visible spectrum. So there's evidence that some birds are able to see in the ultraviolet spectrum as well. And there's some bird feathers that reflect in the ultraviolet spectrum. So they see each other in a very different way than we see them. And also, they see the world differently. Kestrels, for instance, can see nitrogen from small mammal urine just sort of glows in the ultraviolet spectrum. So for them, sitting up on a wire, looking down, they can actually see much more than we can about where the small mammals are traveling, where the little pathways are, and of course it helps them tremendously with their hunting. Very, very sight-oriented animals. For the most part, poor sense of smell, with some exceptions. And then, in some cases, really specially adapted hearing as well. And, And some of the nocturnal birds are good examples of that. Owls with much larger ears and the ability to funnel sound to their ears with their feathers, those big facial discs. Sort of the best examples would be some of the owls like you'd have in Montana, great gray owls that are able to hunt field Mice and voles under a snowpack entirely by sound, telling where they are and dropping right down in the snow and grabbing them, which is a wonderful thing to watch. I I wish I'm looking forward to actually seeing it. I've seen video of it, but looking forward to seeing it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tim, for meeting with me today in Georgia and talking to me about
1: birds. My pleasure. You never have to twist my arm to talk about birds. (laughs) Tim, let's end this
0: show with three
1: outdoor adventure tips. All right, three outdoor adventure tips. Know your tides, of course that's specific if you're on the coast, awfully easy to run into trouble if you haven't checked your tide charts on the coast and either get stuck or start hitting things which you didn't think you should be hitting. Know where you are and how to read a map without a GPS. So use a GPS, use the technology that's available to you, but be able to find your way when it dies map reading is a great skill and a lot of fun so learn how to do it without a gps last don't trust your wife to pack the alcohol on a backpacking trip (laughs) very bad experience with goldschlager that i don't know why she brought but
0: (laughs) namaste missoula mandela here your host of the trail less traveled an adventure series dedicated to collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the world subscribe to the free podcast on itunes google play stitcher iHeartRadio, and spotify and visit TrailLessTravel.net to see pictures archive previous episodes or contact me i'd like to thank my guest for this week Featuring Tim Kyes, a wildlife biologist and ornithologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non game birds. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Has Traveled, and my goal for this show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. The Trail Less Traveled is the community source for adventure information and inspiration, Sunday nights at 6. My adventure tip this week is to check your shoes before slipping them on when traveling in parts of the world where poisonous critters could crawl into your shoe for a wee nap. One time in Kenya, I was bitten by a large spider after forgetting to tap my shoes out before putting them on. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get out there and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar doesn't shred itself.